I'm not sure if you've ever experienced this kind of thing. I'm sure you have, where you've wanted to begin a job, but you're so overwhelmed with everything that needs to be done, you're not even sure where to start. I'm a bit like that with our garden. It's just rampant weeds and overgrown trees and bushes, and I look outside and I hardly know where to begin. So what I often do is I go outside and I have a look at all that needs to be done, and then I go back inside and I get something cold to drink, and then I scroll through photographs of English country gardens um, and kind of ignore what's going on outside. Or perhaps you needed to do some rebuilding at some stage, and, and there's just rubble to move, and there's so much ground to clear out before you can even start the building, and you just wonder, how on earth are you going to get this all done? And, and of course, the, the answer is, just start, to at least just make a beginning. It's how I've begun to handle our lawn mowing. Um, it used to be that I would look at our garden and go, man, I've got to mow the lawn today. And it would take me the whole day to do it because there's just so much to push, you know, so much grass to push the lawn mower over. Now I've kind of changed my approach and I've gone, well, I'm going to cut grass for an hour today. And whatever gets cut in that hour is what gets cut. And it's taken a huge load of, of, off my shoulder where I realize I don't have to cut the whole lawn in one day. I can do a bit here and a bit there and get it done over a, a week or two. It's far easier than trying to do it all in one hit. To be honest, I imagine that the returning exiles must have felt this same kind of overwhelming sense of where do we begin? Jerusalem had been knocked down and burnt to the ground uh, 70 years earlier. The countryside had been depopulated. Vineyards had been cut down and burnt. Olive trees had been repurposed for impaling. <laughs> the, the entire countryside was blighted. Uh, perhaps think back to some of the towns across Europe at the end of World War II. The difference being, being that there were still some people left in Europe to rebuild. But here in Israel, it's been 70 years of very little happening. There have been a, a few poverty-stricken individuals who've been left on the land to eke out some kind of existence. But by and large, nature has taken over. And that's probably not a bad thing, but the weeds have grown. Cultivated land has, has gone to the wild. And any building that there had been has now become just a pile of stones. So when the exiles return home, you've got to, they've got to be asking the questions, where do we start? Where do we begin rebuilding? Not just fixing up a little garden, but rebuilding a country. We, we read at the end of chapter 2 last week that each of them went to their own village and their own town. And I guess they went home and began to clear up and at least try to put a roof over their heads and, and maybe even plant a few crops. But it's not long before they gather and do what it is that they intended to do from the start. So let me read this morning from Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, uh, the son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of, of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for every day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, the king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity of Jerusalem, began the work appointing Levites twenty years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Yeshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising the work on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple, of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the, Lord, of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads had seen the former temple, and they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of, shouts of joy from the sound of of weeping, because the people made such noise. The sound was heard far away. So it's the seventh month, and they've all gone to Jerusalem. Now, just to be clear, this is not the seventh month after their arrival. This is the seventh month of the year. In, in the first year of them being back in Judah, they make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. This is literally a few months after their arrival. Because you see, these people had not come back home to rebuild some kind of life independent from Babylon. They hadn't left Babylon to come to Judah just because they wanted to experience life on the frontier. These people had left Babylon and come back to the ruins of Jerusalem in order to see the kingdom of God re-established. That was the primary reason for their return. For the purpose and sake of the kingdom of God. Now, two, two and a half thousand years ago, back in the days of Ezra, the idea of kingdom of God meant a theocracy, God in charge, confined to a piece of land, a bit of geography in the Middle East. Now, we know that when Jesus came, he clarified this idea of the kingdom when he announced the kingdom is here, the kingdom has come. 
Because you see, the kingdom of God is not really about geography. It's not about a place with defined borders. The kingdom of God is, in fact, anywhere that God rules. And his kingdom is in the hearts of men and women all over the world. And so he still calls people today to leave Babylon, to leave this world, to leave its enticements and virtues and vices and its fun and its injustice and, and all that goes with it, and to come and enter into the kingdom of his son. Now, some people think that the kingdom of God is something that is still to come, that it's something still in the future, that it's a, a future event where Jesus will come back one day and, and literally go to Jerusalem and live there and reign as a king for a thousand years. I think it's a poor understanding of what the kingdom is. Jesus was very clear when he walked on this earth that the kingdom of God is already here, that the kingdom of God is in our midst. And I think we can, it's, it's fair to say that the kingdom was properly established at the cross. And yes, there is still the fullness of the kingdom to come. And we read about that last week in the book of Revelation. And so we find ourselves at the moment living in this, this kind of this in-between stage of the, of the both now and not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom is here, but not in its fullness. I think the best definition of the kingdom of God that I ever heard is, is, is quite simply this. God's people living in God's place, living under God's rule, and enjoying God's presence and blessing. We'll say a little bit more about that later. But the point is that these exiles have returned, and their priority is the kingdom. So they're God's people and they've come to this place that God has appointed for them. And they're hoping to find in this place God's presence and God's blessing upon them. And so they become then three things in this chapter that we see. Three things that they orient their post-exile lives around. Obedience to the word of God. A rebuilt altar. And a rebuilt temple. We could put it like this. Word, sacrifice and presence. That's really what they're rebuilding their lives around. So the first thing you notice, you, you can't help but notice when reading this passage, the number of times that there is a reference to, they did it according to the word of the Lord. So at the end of verse 2, it's done in accordance with the law, law of Moses. In verse 4, it's done in accordance with what was written. In, in verse 10, you read, it was done in accordance with what David had prescribed. So there is this repetition then in this chapter of them doing things in accordance with the word of God. See, they didn't arrive and kind of have a look around and go, oh, I wonder how we're going to do this. I wonder what should, what should we do? And then start making stuff up as to how they'll go about worshipping God and reestablishing the kingdom. No, no. They want to do things by the book. And of course, that's a good thing, because one of the things that had got them into exile in the first place is that they had neglected, they had abandoned the book. And so in seeking to reestablish the kingdom, one of their very first priorities is to make sure that they build their lives around obedience to the revealed word of God. And what's interesting in this chapter that we find is that it's the word of God that establishes for them the rhythms of life and worship. So when you look at what they're doing, it's, it's daily offerings and monthly feasts and seasonal celebrations. 
The word of God is not just about a bunch of rules that they have to obey. You can't do this and you mustn't do that and you shouldn't go there and you better not say the following. No, no. The word of God is about setting up for them their daily, weekly, monthly, seasonal rhythms of life. Now the thing for us to understand, of course, is that we too are exiles called by God out of Babylon into his kingdom. Babylon is not just some ruined city up in Iraq somewhere. I know a few years ago people were panicking because our Saddam Hussein is rebuilding the city of Babylon. That misses the point. Babylon is this world that we live in with its entertainment and its enticement and its fun and games, its power and control, its idols and its satisfactions. And there are a lot of those things that are fun and are beneficial, but there are a lot of those things that are bad and detrimental. And God has called us out of Babylon into his kingdom to a better way to live. And if we're called out of Babylon and into his kingdom, then this becomes key for us. We, like these exiles, need to live in obedience to his word and to allow his word to determine the rhythms of our daily life. So at a basic fundamental level, we need to read the Bible. We need to study the Bible. We need to do what it says. And so one of the challenges this morning is just simply this. Are you reading the Bible? Do you read the Bible? Do you ever read the Bible? Do you set, a set aside time during your day, during your week, to actually read and to study the Bible? I have a habit at the moment where I read the Bible every morning while I'm eating my cornflakes. It's just a, that's the habit, that's the routine that I'm in. Do you set aside time to study the Word? But more importantly, do we obey what we read? And in fact, it's not just do we obey in terms of I can do this and I can't do that, but do we allow the Bible, do we allow His Word to set the tone and the standards for how we live and how we think? In other words, does the Word of God set out the rhythms of our daily life? I'll be honest, I think that a lot of us have missed some of the rhythm and routine of this past year. For some of you, for some of us, the last 20 or 30 years, we've had this weekly rhythm of, of gathering as a church on Sunday for worship and fellowship. It's simply been one of the routines and rhythms of our life. And, and where the Sundays have been good or bad, those days, those moments gathered as the church have kind of set the tone and set the rhythm for our, our, our weekly life. And this past year has seen that rhythm, has seen that routine disrupted. I know a number of people have said to me over the last few weeks that at various, at, at various times that, that the days just seem to bleed into each other and that no day seems to be any different from any other anymore there's a sense in which we feel like we've we've lost a bit of our, our rhythm and routine and what that's meant for many people is that this disruption has pushed worship to one side and our rhythms and routines ha have become more defined by our society than they have by the word of god they've been defined more by babylon than they have by zion and so we've ended up aligning ourselves either by accident or on purpose to the world around us instead of to the rhythm and in accordance with the word of God. So can you see that it's about more than just, are you reading your Bible? 
although reading the Bible itself becomes a rhythm worth instilling. But it's more than just reading the Bible, but it's allowing the Word of God to set the tone for how we live. The second priority of these exiles in re-entering the kingdom was this rebuilt altar. And in fact, the rebuilt altar is pretty much the first thing that they did. They've had a, a couple of months to kind of set up some sort of household, but they obey the command of God and they gather for pilgrimage on the Day of Atonement. That's what the first day of the seventh month is. It's the Day of Atonement. And what they do is they do a little survey around Jerusalem and they find the exact spot where the altar had been before the Babylonians had arrived. And they clear away the rubble and whatever burnt bricks and destroyed stuff and they, and they move all that stuff to one side and they rebuild the altar. Now the altar was central and key to their worship. Old Testament ceremony was built around the altar and the sacrifices there. Sacrificed animals were largely done for the forgiveness of sins. And the Day of Atonement was the biggest festival of the year. See, so you could come in daily and offer sacrifice for sins, but we all know there are sins that we did that we didn't even know, we, were, we weren't even aware that we did them. Things we said or whatever, there are, there are things that we do we didn't even know that they were wrong. And that was kind of what the Day of Atonement was about. It was, it was a day when, when the priest was able to say, Oh God, look back in this past year, and we recognize that there's stuff that we've done that we shouldn't have done, and we're not even aware of half the things that have, that have violated your laws. And so please offer this accept this sacrifice as an offering in our place for the sins committed in this past year. So it was a major feast day for the forgiveness of sins of the nation. It was the day of the scapegoat and all that kind of stuff. But the issue here is that for 70 years, there's been no sacrifice. For 70 years, there's been no forgiveness of sin. And so this gathering is a gathering where they're dealing with not just the sins of the past year, but the sins of the past 70 years. But it's not just the sins of the past 70 years. There hasn't been an opportunity for the, for the people of Israel to offer sacrifices for what sent them into exile in the first place. And so this particular sacrifice of atonement is a huge moment for the people of Israel. It's not just uh, dealing with the sins of the past, past 70 years. It's the past 70 years and more. And this is the moment when those sins will be decisively dealt with. And you can see in this passage how the people orient themselves around the altar. It's daily sacrifices and, and regular feasts that require the sacrifices. And so again, the altar becomes this central feature of this post-exilic community. The altar becomes the central focus of the re-established kingdom of God. Now, again, remember that, that we are the people who are brought out of Babylon, so do we need to build an altar? Is this about us offering sacrifices to God? And, and to be honest, I don't think it is. What it does mean for us is that, just like these guys, we also need to orient our lives around an altar and a sacrifice. Don't come and tell me now that this is about your often, Sunday afternoon braai and how you're going to spend it oriented around the braai grid and with the burnt offerings that are going to happen there. Our lives are to be oriented around an altar and a sacrifice. 
But the altar that we orient around takes the shape of a cross. And the sacrifice that we orient our lives around is not the sacrifices we offer to God. It's not, oh, I'll give up ice cream for a week for Jesus. No, no, we orient our lives around his sacrifice for us. See, the offerings, the sacrifices back in the book of Ezra were not so much about what I brought to God, but about what God was doing on my behalf here. It's not so much about me offering something to him, but the priest offering a sacrifice on my behalf. And that hasn't changed. We too have a high priest. And what is significant is the sacrifice that he performed on our behalf. And the, atone, the atonement that was gained for us by his sacrifice for us. Life in the kingdom is about one great sacrifice. Life in the kingdom is about constantly looking to the cross and seeing the mercy and grace of God on display there. Life as post-exilic exiles that have left Babylon, that have left Babylon behind, and is all about reorienting life around the cross and making the cross central to everything that we say and do. See, Babylon tends to place me at the center. Life revolves around me and my accomplishments and my wants and my desires and my achievements and, and even my sacrifices. And so we'll even get a little bit confused and we'll say, Hey God, can you see what I've done for you? Here's the thing that I'm sacrificing for your sake. And all that does is it puts me at the center, what I'm doing. And that's Babylon. Babylon is all about looking out for number one with me at the center. But the kingdom, the kingdom is different. The kingdom replaces me and my, my myopic eye with the cross. See, in Babylon, I get to define who I am. I get to determine what I want. I get to decide who I will be. But in the kingdom, it's the cross that defines who I am. I'm a sinner saved by grace, made in the image of God. It's the cross that determines what I need. I need grace and mercy every day. And it's the cross that decides what I will be. That I'm a saint called by God. And so just like these exiles gathered and rebuilt an altar and then allowed those sacrifices to determine who they were and how they lived, well, we too gather at the foot of the cross, and Jesus defines us. The third thing that these exiles did is they laid the foundations to the temple. Now, to be clear, they didn't finish building the temple at this point. We'll see over the next couple of weeks as we carry on reading into the book of, of Ezra that the work of the temple is put on hold. There's all sorts of opposition, and it takes 20 or 30 years before the temple itself is actually built. So right now, all they've done is laid the foundations. But at least they're doing that. Now, what's important about the temple is that the temple represented God's presence among his people. So you remember my definition of the kingdom? God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, and God's blessing. Well, that whole, thing, that, that whole idea of the kingdom comes out of this little book called God, God's Big Picture. And I highly recommend this. I'll, put a, I'll post a link for where you can get it as a free download. It's a short book. It's not difficult to read at all. But it just sets out this idea of what God's kingdom looks like through the scriptures. 
And the big deal about the blessing of God is it's, it's His presence among us. God among His people. And so as you, you look through the Bible, you see how God's presence, kind of, I know this is not the right phrase, but how God's presence works at different times in different places. So in the Garden of Eden, the whole, the whole, the whole garden is God's temple because God comes down and walks with his people, Adam and Eve, in the cool of the evening in the garden. But then during the days of the patriarch, there isn't a garden and there isn't a temple and God appears at specific times in specific places. And at those specific places, an altar is built to commemorate that this is where God was. And so God's presence then becomes kind of limited and somewhat scattered during the days of the patriarchs of Noah and Abraham and Joseph. But then Moses comes along. And for Moses and 500 years later, there is a, a tabernacle, a tent that is, that is made. And, and where the tent is, there God's presence is with his people. And as the tent moves around, as that tabernacle is moved from place to place, so the presence of God, it indicates the presence of God goes with his people. And the big deal at the end of the book of Exodus is that the presence of God fills the tabernacle. But 500 years later, along comes Solomon, and Solomon builds a permanent structure. He builds an actual temple. And at the grand opening of that temple, again, the presence of God fills that place like a cloud, and no one can see each other in the temple. And it really literally means God has come. He is among his people. So the temple then becomes this place that is associated with God's presence with his people. But then we find something happening in a couple of the, um, of the prophets. Ezekiel and Jeremiah both speak about this. How God leaves the temple. And it's a sad moment in the history of Israel that the temple is no longer the place of God's presence. And then of course the Babylonians come and they destroy the temple completely. And now here are these exiles. They've returned and they're rebuilding. They laid the foundations and they're hoping to start all over again. And their hope is that once the foundations are laid and the building goes up, that they, the presence of God will once again be in their midst. But there's further disappointment for them at the end of this book. Because there isn't a Solomon moment of God's presence filling this rebuilt temple. But for now, these guys have cleared away the rubble, they've laid out the foundations, and their hope is that this will signify the presence of God among his people, because this is what the kingdom of God is about. God with us. It's that covenant promise of, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so the emphasis on the temple throughout the scripture is huge. The foundation is laid. The people celebrate, they rejoice, it's such good news, they sing one of the psalms, he is good, his love endures forever. And so they, they look at what is now before them, and they're filled with joy at, at the hope of what may come. But you notice something else in that story, don't you? That some of the older people look back, and they see what once was. And they recognize that this temple will be nothing like the glory of the previous temple. And they look back with sadness and not with joy. And the truth is, they're right. This new temple that's being built is not all that exciting. And in fact, in about 250 or 300 years time, Herod is going to make some major improvements to this temple. But even then, once Herod has made those wonderful improvements, will it be the place where God dwells with his people? 
The Gospel of John starts with these wonderful words. That uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The word dwelt in our midst. Jesus is the word and he dwelt among us. Jesus did what the people right through the Old Testament had been looking for. God among his people. And in case we miss it, time and again Jesus says things like, One greater than the temple is here. Or he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And then in case we don't understand, the, the gospel writers put in brackets, he was talking about his own body and not the actual building itself. All Jesus was saying is, the building is not what it's about. I am the presence of God in your midst. I am the temple. And again, in case we didn't quite fully understand it, when Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. And one of the things that that symbolizes is that God has escaped. God is not in the temple. God's not there. For, for, for the, last three, the past three years, the priests in Jerusalem had been trying to contain God in the temple, not realizing that God is actually walking around in the countryside, healing people and teaching about the kingdom. See, it's never been about a building. The joy of this foundation laying here is not, yay, we've got a building. The joy of this temple, this foundation laying thing is that it's about the presence of God among his people. It's about God with his people. And of course, Jesus is supremely that. But then the New Testament takes it even a step further. Because Jesus ascends and there's the sense of, okay, well, if Jesus was the temple in the presence of God and he's no longer here but gone back to heaven, now what? And, and the Apostle Paul says, you are the temple. Now, this doesn't mean that you, Ronnie Gill, are the temple and we should all go around to Ronnie's house later this afternoon in order to worship. <laughs> no, no. What it means is that you collectively together, it's like you guys um, use all of us together collectively as the gathered people of God. You are the place where God is. God's not found on some hill somewhere. God's not locked up in a cathedral. God is truly with his people. And even that then becomes superseded by what we read last week about when the, the new Jerusalem comes to earth and, and there is no temple there. Uh, why? Because the whole city is the temple. Because God is with his people on every street corner. So you see that grand trajectory of how it starts with the garden and God everywhere. And then it becomes God in, in limited places uh, with the patriarchs. And then God in a tabernacle that moves with the people. And then God in a temple in the days of Solomon. And then Jesus himself in our midst. And then God in the church, wherever the church gathers. To one day, the glory of God filling the whole earth. And the whole earth becoming his temple. The people took delight in the temple in Ezra, but they look back with sorrow. You and I look at the temple, at the church of Jesus, and look ahead with joy at what is to come. For now, like the people here, we have this temple among the ruins. Because the kingdom of God is here, but not in its fullness. This earth is still subject to sorrow and sadness and pain and loss. And Babylon seems to extend its fingers even here into, the, into this place. And so we have this temple, the church of God, in the midst of ruins. 
We have God's presence and God's people in this place where Babylon still wants to rule. We have God's presence with his people in this kingdom, and it is a foretaste of what is to come, but we still groan under the injustice and weakness and turmoil, and we still face the threat of an enemy. But we look forward with joy, because we know that the ruins of this kingdom are being rebuilt and restored. And this temple, the church of Jesus, will advance and will grow and will expand. And the day will come when the kingdom is fully and finally here in all of its glory. And the king will be unveiled and he will put all things right. And injustice and sadness and death and sin will be done away with. So let me try and pull this all together this morning. We're exiles. We've been called out of Babylon and into the kingdom. But the kingdom isn't yet what it will one day be. We're still awaiting that great day. But for now, we live our lives among the ruins. But we orient our lives around his word, his sacrifice, and his presence. His word sets out the daily rhythms of our life. His cross defines all that we are and will be. And his presence gives us courage to live these days with joy. To be able to sing with Yeshua and Zerubbabel that he is good and his love to his people endures forever. And I want those words to stay with you at the end this morning. That he is good. And you might look back in this past week and wonder, where is the good in that? You might look back over this past week or this past month and wonder, what's going on? Is God really good? You see the pain and the sorrow and the death and the, the sickness and you see job loss and, 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 and loneliness and you wonder, really, is God good? The people in Ezra's day looked around at their ruins and looked back over 70 years of captivity and looked back before that to exile and, and to war and destruction. And they were still able to say, God is good. And he is. Because the goodness of God is not determined and defined by our circumstances. The goodness of God is simply who he is. And we can be sure of this, that his love for his church, his love for his people, endures forever. His love will not fail, it will not end, it will not diminish. And again, his love for you is not determined and defined by how you act and how you behave and by what sacrifices you offer. His love for you is established at the cross. Do you want to know if he still loves you? Don't look back in one week and, 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 and evaluate your life. Don't look back over a year. No, no, you're not, not looking back far enough. You need to look back 2,000 years and orient your life and redefine your understanding of his love for you around that supreme act of our great high priest who gave his life for you. His word, his sacrifice, and his presence become the central focus of his people in his kingdom. We who are escaping Babylon are orienting our lives around that. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning that we orient our lives around you. Thank you for calling us out of Babylon calling us out of darkness and calling us into the kingdom to a better life, to a better way to live, to a better king, to a better country. 
Lord, may we orient our lives around your word. May your scripture set out the rhythms of how we live. May we orient ourselves around the cross. May your cross define who we are. May we be completely engaged by your presence, by your goodness, by your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.